just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just Welcome to another edition of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Brad Sobolewski at PEM Tweets on Twitter and PEMblog.com for all of your PEM educational needs. Today, we're going to talk about paratitis. So unsurprisingly, it's an acute infection of the parotid glands. Now, the cause is usually viral, and this includes mumps, influenza, parainfluenza, Coxsackie A, echovirus, and HIV. Now, interestingly, children with HIV will often have chronic paratitis, but in most cases, this is, again, an acute infection. It's most commonly seen in children under the age of 15 years, and it presents with unilateral or rarely bilateral parotid swelling following a prodrome of fever, malaise, headaches, myalgias, and arthralgias, you know, like the flu. So in general, patients are thought to be contagious for about 7 to 10 days after the onset of the gland swelling. On exam, you're going to see a mildly tender, firm, indurated area of swelling extending from the preauricular area, and that runs below and behind the ear. The angle of the jaw can appear to be blunted if they have mandibular lymph node swelling or additional salivary gland swelling. Patients may describe more pain when eating, especially adjacent to the pinna, and that can mimic TMJ or other complaints. Now again, involvement of the sublingual and submandibular glands can be seen, but it's much less common, probably less than 1 out of 10 patients. The swelling and symptoms can last for 7 to 10 days, with the worst symptoms being present in the first third of the illness. So viral paratitis must be differentiated from acute suppurative paratitis, which fortunately in children is much more rare. It's most often due to Staphylococcus aureus, and if you've got a high community prevalence of MRSA, you're going to have to think about that as well. The history includes rapid gland enlargement and severe pain. These patients are also ill-appearing with high fevers and a toxic appearance. The ill-appearance will probably persist after defervescence. On physical exam, you're going to see erythema and exquisite tenderness in the location of the parotid gland. By massaging the gland, you may express pus from Stenson's duct, which is located adjacent to the first upper molar on the buccal surface. Now, there are non-infectious causes of paratitis, but these are much less likely in children. These include a sialolith, which is a stone blocking the duct, cancers, and traumatic insufflation of the gland from active trumpet blowing. Now, in cases of mumps, you will see unilateral orchitis in about 20 to 30% of patients, but this is not the case, as expected, in the other viral causes. Non-paratitis causes of swelling in this area include cystic hygroma, hemangioma, lymphadenitis, Sjogren's, and Caffey-Silverman syndrome, which you can Google if you'd like, or lymphoma. So what should you do if you have a patient with paratitis? Well, if you suspect that it's suppurative paratitis and the patient's ill-appearing, start antibiotics with appropriate staph coverage. That includes drugs like Clinda or Bactrim or Vancomycin if you're in a MRSA area. Otherwise, the treatment's supportive. It includes fluids, antipyretics, and analgesics. You have to educate the patient and parent to return for worsening symptoms or pain. Antibiotics are not required for the vast majority of cases because, well, they're caused by viruses, especially if the history and exam are reassuring. Now, do you need to send mumps titers? In short, no. Mumps titers or labs in general are unnecessary unless the child's unimmunized, they have definitive exposure to mumps, or they're immunosuppressed. Though an amylase level can help confirm the diagnosis, it's really nonspecific and it's not recommended for the majority of cases. 
And yes, since influenza is a known cause, you might expect to see a rise of peritonitis cases in times of flu epidemic. But that still doesn't mean that you have to send a rapid flu antigen or flu PCRs if the patient clinically has the diagnosis you think they do. And the last question that comes up is whether or not you need imaging. Well, if you consider looking with your eyes and making the diagnosis imaging, then sure. But otherwise, no. Since most cases are diagnosed clinically, an ultrasound, CT, or MRI is not going to give you additional detail. Even if you have an ill-appearing child with a fluctuant mass, I still recommend consulting otolaryngology. Even if you do identify an abscess by ultrasound, you're going to want ENT to take care of the procedure. There are a number of complications, including chronic fistulous-draining tracts, which you'll want to avoid if you care about long-term outcomes. So in summary, peritonitis is usually unilateral, caused by a virus, and seen in well-appearing patients. The diagnosis is clinical and the treatment is supportive unless you have an ill-appearing child with a presumed bacterial cause. Again, this has been Brad Soboleski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets and check out more learning at PEMblog.com. Falling, yes I'm falling